One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope that you are incredibly well. Now, I'm delighted to have Mary Portis on the show this week, but I have to confess to a slight potential audio issue. I say potential. I think it's there. Essentially, um, thank goodness it's me you can't hear as well as you can hear Mary. I thought about whether to publish and I listened to it a few times, and I, I think it's okay, but just to let you know that you may struggle to hear me at some points during this episode, I'm very, very sorry about that. I will endeavour to make sure that this never, ever happens again. It is my, it's always my ambition to bring you the best quality podcast that I can, and I'm sorry that I basically fluff this one up. The, but the good thing is, the good news is, it's Mary you can hear, and honestly, you don't want to miss a word of what she says. She is one of the UK's most high-profile and most successful businesswomen. She has, in many ways, literally transformed the high street, is an authority on her industry, and has an impressive television career to boot. It's why you'll often hear her referred to as a retail guru. <laughs> Probably not a guru, a retail guru. She's instantly recognisable because of her signature style, which is topped off by a Sassoon-worthy fire-red hair. And while her, in fact, so much so that when I was walking down the street to her offices, I thought, I, I know it's on the street, but I can't, I can't remember where it is because I used to work very near it. And she was standing in the street outside and I thought, that's it. I could see her from a mile off. And while her business, um, her success in business may have you falling for the stereotype that she must be a ball breaker, my experience with her and my experience with her book suggests nothing of the sort. Her new book, which is the reason why we are speaking, because it's out right now, Work Like a Woman, is a very practical and methodical advice manual with anecdotes from Mary's own experiences told via the various epiphanies she has had in both her professional and personal life. Don't think she hasn't stumbled, fallen flat on her face, or hit a brick wall. She has, and she's very honest about it. But she's picked herself up, learned the lesson, maybe not every time, but eventually, and move forward with gusto. I read this book and wished I had been able to read it before I went into the workforce. So when I left school, I wish I'd been able to read it when I entered the workforce and at each significant career juncture I've had, especially when I went freelance and actually especially even more so when I started this podcast and was like creating my own platform. It really is rich with all the lessons learned from Mary's triumphs and, as I've said, indeed her failures. In this episode, we talk about developing a sense of self and why that's the starting point to 
understanding what you want and why you want it, why failing is no bad thing, trusting your instincts, and we talk about how and why kindness and being a go-getter in business, especially as a woman, don't have to be mutually exclusive. All the links to everything mentioned will be in the show notes on Apple Podcast, Acast, and wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. That may also be emmaguns.com. Please do go and visit. And also all of Mary's social handles so you can follow her. And of course, the link to buy Mary's book. So here she is. As I said, I'm delighted to have Mary Portis on The Emma Guns Show. Listeners, I'm very excited. I am joined by Mary Porters. Hello. Hello. Um, it's such a delight to speak to you because I've admired, admired you for many years. And you have this book out, and that's why we're talking called Work Like a Woman. And as you can see, it's littered with post-it notes. <laughs> they do have things written on them. I haven't just done it for show. You've got a good proof copy there. You always keep a proof copy. I love proof copies. I love them. Mm. I I have shelf, shelves full of them now, and yeah. I find them... I don't know, there's something a bit more, um, it's like getting something signed. Yeah, it's kind of just that early thought process. The early process is sort of something slightly wonderfully organic about it as mm. well, isn't it? And not too finished. Not too finished. <laughs> and I think the thing, for me, as someone who was reading it, I um, uh, thought, I wish I had read this years ago. Mm. I wish this had been a resource available to me. I wish this insight had been available to me when I entered the workforce, even before. And it's been very challenging, (laughs) wondering where to begin, because normally when you do your research for something like this, you sort of funnel down to, right, that's going to be my entry point. But I have (laughs) so many things I want to talk to you about. But I think one of the things that really stood out for me was this incredibly strong sense of self that you carried into the workplace even when you were new even at places like Topshop and Harvey Nichols it 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 read like there was a strong sense of self even though you were saying you were learning and you were in this alpha culture yeah I don't I, I don't know whether I had a huge strong sense of self I think I'm at that age I think a lot of it was uh, I was propelled forward by such a fear um and I think one has to understand my background, um, you know, I lost my mother when I was 16 and my mother was this incredible matriarch, this mm. strong, um, just force. And I remember even, you know, sort of crying, ever thinking, if anything happened to mummy, you know, and I remember knowing how, just what an incredible, mm. fiery, brilliant redhead my mother was. And I was one of five kids and I was the fourth out of five, so I, and a very sort of close-knit Irish Catholic family. And... Um, I didn't ever feel particularly special because I was his fourth out of five. So I remember sort of not thinking, well, I'm not the oldest. Michael's the oldest and he's superior in intelligence. Mm-hmm. And my sister Tish is the eldest girl. And then there's my little brother Lawrence, who's a baby. And I'm sort of stuck here. Mm-hmm. And I sort of, for years, just fought against this. And so I, I kind of made myself heard uh, by being naughty and mischievous, which was a place that I rather enjoyed. <laughs> And when my mother died um, very suddenly from meningitis when I was 16, well, just to actually just turned 17, it was that summer, I remember it so very well, and um, just finished school, and um, I, it was as if my whole world had just stopped. It was as if my childhood had stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I was left at home with my younger sibling, Lawrence, because my older siblings had gone off. Well, one was at university, one was nursing, and one was hairdressing. And so I ended up taking over and running the family home. My father was just completely inconsolable. It just went to pieces. <clears throat> and I, and, and later, subsequently, um, died a few years later of a heart attack. And I ended up being this kind of the matriarch of the family at a very young age. And in, in some ways, it was the making of me. I mean, it's certainly not something I would advise for anybody to go through. But it took what was this mischievous energy and it put it into a kind of thrusting forward, protective, mm. capable, don't worry, I'll look after you, Lawrence. Don't worry, when everybody's home for the weekend, I will keep this family unit together. And I think that what thrusts me forward was this fear that I would ever go back to that loneliness again. Mm. I, and so I did, and what I was going to say is I suppose I did um, evolve my sense of self younger than most. And you often find people who have had trauma or feel they're not the norm have to identify their position in the world mm. you often used to find a lot of gay young men who emotionally evolved quicker because they realized they weren't the norm mm. and therefore they had to navigate the world in a different way yeah. when you have to navigate the world in a different way because you don't have the fallback of what is the norm, whether that's parents or whether, mm. you know, you're going and you're going to get a girlfriend or a boyfriend and you're thinking, no, I'm not. Mm. You then evolve and I think your sense of self starts to come um, through quicker mm. than a lot of people who go through life who have kind of an okay life and never evolve. Does that sound a bit sort of tangential? And <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, not at all. And actually, you were just saying something then about why that mischievous energy became and turned into, I will be protective and this will happen. And I feel like there's a section in the book where you actually give almost like a point by point for 20-somethings, for 30-somethings, for 40-somethings, yeah. for 50-plus-somethings. Yeah. And it feels as though the section for the 20-somethings is almost the... the you you didn't have the luxury of that transition period. As you say, your childhood stopped and you became an adult very much in that moment. But um, that that protective energy, you've given people the tools to be able to do something similar. You've given them the, the safety net or the fallback that perhaps you never had and had to figure out on the run. Yes, I think that's a very good analysis. I think, you know, it's funny because I didn't realise until, and we all realise many things, age is an incredible thing at making you realise and become and, and connect with yourself. But I, I remember I got invited to do Desert Island Discs and I was going off to do it. And on the morning I left... I looked at my two children, who were then the age of Lawrence was, so Verity was 14 and, and, and Milo was just 16, and those were the age of, of my me and my little brother who were left running a family, mm. you know, and I just was heartbroken. And you know how you even said to me earlier, and you said, I, I just kind of got very emotional because I wish I'd read this book before, because you were going back to that place of vulnerability that mm. you were in, and that pain is so sharp mm. when you've been damaged. And I... I felt that when I looked at these two kids who to this day and are now in their early 20s still need their mother as a sage and a guide mm. and a protection in some ways. And when you lose that young, you, you have to find, or you create your own. Mm. It was interesting you mentioned Desert Islanders because I wonder, you often hear people say that they do that, they speak to Kirsty Young, and that it, it, an epiphany happens. And one of the things that you said on Desert Island Discs was, it's not about control, it's not about control. But then in the book, you actually said that 
you took some time out, did an analysis, and you realised that control was at the heart of it. And I wondered if the two, if one was the catalyst to the other. Well, I really didn't think it was about control, but it obviously was about control. But it wasn't about control in this way that this is, I have to be the dominant force here. It was a control in these are sort of parameters that make me feel safe. And my God, if they're ever shaken, then I'm back in that little scary place mm. in the late summer of the 70s when my mother left this world. So, and I never want to go back there. And I still, to this day, it is the scariest place you could ever put me back to. Um, but here's the thing, as we all know, as we get older, that facing fear and not knowing what the future will be and not knowing and letting that go. And one of my favourite Buddhist nuns is a, a woman called Pema Chodron, who I read, and she just, you know, talks about this and says, that is how we grow. There is no security. There are no um, outcomings that we can control. We have to just stand there and know that this just is. And if we work within the is, mm -hmm. then we create what we open up we open up and we let things take over and and guide us and if we put good energy at the heart of that some pains will happen of course they will mm. but if we put good energy and what is right at the heart of that and do the right thing invariably it will take us on the right journey and when we're in places of fear over whether it's our work and your fear and that's why i talk about work like a woman your fear that someone can change your life, sack you, because you don't fit in to their culture. What you end up doing is diminishing yourself. Mm. You diminish yourself to be okay and fit what their needs are rather than what yours are. And there's actually, quite early on in the book, there's a stat um, in a survey of 2,000 working women, three courses admitting changing how they looked or behaved in order to succeed. That's, ex that's extraordinary. That is extraordinary, isn't it? But I totally believe it. Of course I do, and I still do. And I think, you know, even at my age, there's a piece where I write in there, and I was going on stage to talk after the business minister or whatever, and he was on before me, and I knew it was a real male organisation that I was going in to speak at. It was a big business. And I thought, he'll be going on this suit. And I was just about to put on a wonderful pair of Marquis Almeida flowery trousers. <laughs> They're very me. With my bright orange hair and I put my rings and I was thinking, oh my God, Portas, you look too fashion. And there was me still thinking, am I going to fit in? And thank God I was able to connect back to myself and just go, mm. this is you. This is what makes you feel good and comfortable. Go out there and do your thing. <laughs> it's that sense of self again though, isn't it? It's like yes. uncompromisingly Mary. Thank you very yes. much. Yes, But you do have to manage it though. You are continually going... I, I mean, I get so many things offered to me and I'm like is that something that's really me and is that connected to me? So I'm always sort of assessing, mm. should I do that? Should I not do that? And always I fall back on instinct. Instinct's a very powerful thing and it always gives you the answer. And instinct is you being rooted to your inner self. Absolutely. And I read a book recently that talks about um, any, any icky feelings, for want of a better expression, are when you're out of line with your true self. Mm. So anxiety, um, fear, all of these things that... I mean, I still definitely have post-traumatic stress. I'm not diminishing real post-traumatic stress, by the way, but um, an anarchy email, certain emails come into my inbox and I can feel that response. Of course. Survival. Yeah. And that fear. What's your post-traumatic stress from? 
just from having having had aggravated emails in the past in in the workplace yeah and those emails that were like that were the subject line was confidential which you know meant you're in the shit oh my god you know <laughs> uh, it's just those things should never be done by email mm. you see that that is the thing i have there are things where you need to address problems. There are things where it might be the end of the line at work. Mm. But I like to think if that's ever happened with me and my agency, that people go out feeling okay about mm. themselves, that there is dignity at the heart of it. Mm. And when you get those emails of confidential, that's someone using their power. Mm. Uh, that's someone absolutely not caring about the emotional end result of what that does to you receiving it. So we have a policy where we never send any emails in the evenings or over the weekend unless they're happy and joyful and they're a need-to-know thing and we're sharing some interesting insights. Mm. I had a boss who used to just call me in on a Friday and tell me something bad and she said, we'll pick it up again on Monday. Oh, that's just awful. That just makes me feel sick. Yeah. And I'd be there in my little 20s going, oh, my God, oh, my God, and that nervous stomach, you know. And you'd be going out with your pals on a Saturday night, but all you were thinking was, yeah. oh, my God, oh, my God. I once spent a Christmas day cooking the meal, talking to my family about why my boss and I didn't get on Christmas Day. But it is what it is. But I think the thing that, obviously, I was a part of that and I can control my reaction. And so the thing I kind of came to learn or have come to learn is that if I did get fired, and that was what I was so scared of back in my early career, I was so scared of getting fired, of doing anything wrong, getting fired. Now I know it would have been all right because you would have made it okay. Mm. But I didn't have that piece of the puzzle back then. So I was constantly fearful. And you know what it is about, it's not even what your skill base is, it's about who you deeply are that will make it okay. That's the thing. Mm. Um, I used to do exactly the thing. I'd write down what's the worst thing that could happen. And I'd work out my little finances, you know, and, and try and, you know, see where I would be. And I just thought, I spent too many years doing stuff like that. And mm. the control was with other people in invariably what are hierarchical, powerful places. And that is the antithesis of working like a woman, where you have bullying and control is where you create these pyramids where the power's at the top, invariably in one hand, the next power level's two hands, the next three, mm -hmm. most of whom are the gatekeepers for the one at the top. Mm -hmm. And can override, they can override anything. You know, they make the big decisions. Well, why does that have to be? You know, I own my agency. I do not have the bigger say in what the running of this agency is. That say comes from a group of people who I have given the freedom and responsibility to to make that happen alongside mm. me I would never be able to overrule them I would say I feel really upset about this mm -hmm. or somehow this isn't working with me or I just feel uncomfortable but their reasoning for what they, why they're doing it or why they've agreed as a team of people to do it will outweigh me even though I owe the business that takes Again, that takes a strong sense of knowing that you've put the right team together yeah. and putting your ego to one side. Yes. And that doesn't happen overnight. No, <laughs> it didn't happen overnight to me. You know, I, mm. I did have an ego um, and I wanted to take credit for what was great and I wanted to be the front person. Mm. Um, someone said to me, Is it, does it just come with age? I think, I suppose a lot of this does come with age. 
but I have seen very evolved younger people too mm. who are able to access that sense of self because they felt safe mm. in the world. Safety is a big part of this. And so I think it is my responsibility to make people who work with me, the team, my team, to feel safe. Mm. That is my responsibility. However, that doesn't mean people will abuse that, but if you give them the freedom to be responsible, most people behave brilliantly. Mm. It's true. And you, you have an entire section in here about um, how millennials shouldn't be called all these names. They're actually... Well, you, in your experience, you speak very favor, favorably of them in the workplace, mm. Mm. and yet they do seem to have a really terrible reputation. Well, they're having a terrible reputation because they're being judged by the codes of business that my generation were and the generation before the baby boomers were. And here's the thing, they have absolutely no security. When I left school, I left uni when my parents said, you just knew if you worked hard, you had X amount of money, you'd probably be able to buy your home. Mm. You'd have a job for life if you were good at it and the, and the promotion was linear and off you went. That is just not the world mm. today at all. And there is no financial security. They're certainly not able to buy their homes. They're certainly not able to get on the property ladders. So they're going, what is my life about? And my ambition is to be happy. Mm. And that doesn't mean just putting on the blinkers and driving down and working in the way that my predecessors do because absolutely there's no security at the end of it. And a lot of people had secure jobs who were quite frankly mediocre. And so I would rather have bright, sparky, creative individuals coming into my agency who I don't want to be looking at from 9am to 7 in the evening. Come in when you want to work, work from home if you want to. I want progress. I don't want activity. <laughs> Is this how you would have liked to have been managed in those early jobs at Topshop and Harvey Nichols? No, I'd have loved it, I think. But then I love this now. I love that... You know, we've been able to create this together. And I love the fact that all the stress that I used to take on myself, I'm actually just sharing, not even the stress, I'm sharing the load of responsibility in a much freer way with everybody. Mm. So, you know, easing up that control, which obviously it was that Mm. I had. I mean, the title of the book is Work Like a Woman. And I had a guest on recently and... I very tentatively asked her about masculine energy yeah. in the workplace because, as you outline in the book, there are masculine traits, as it were. I'm mm. using air quotes there. And she said it's not about masculine or feminine. It's about those traits aren't masculine. They're successful people traits. So I was interested in, the, in work like a woman and what the definition of that looks like. Well, I don't think aggression is a successful people trait. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that that is something I would want in my business. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at most top businessmen, there is a level of aggression. And also, if you look at the construct of business, let's take something like The Apprentice. Oh, yeah. Well, exactly. It's just an entertainment show, though. But well, it's still lauded. Those mm. people that gave the world Katie Hopkins, please, who gets a column. This is perpetuated by the press. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of that, it isn't who is the most competent team player. It's the one who wins. Mm. And invariably, that's done by putting someone else down, mm. elbowing sharply in the ribs, 
it's done by individual mm -hmm. success and linear want to get to the top of that ladder. Jordan Peterson wrote this book, and I remember hearing him being interviewed with Kathy on um, Kathy Newman on Channel Four, and I thought, oh my God, that's the most hideous person I've ever seen being interviewed, and I wanted to slap him, but he actually did make sense. He said, men will be more aggressive in work; they will work longer hours, and that is why they get to the top, and that's quite true. But who's looking after the family at home? Mm. And great success has nothing, I don't think, to do with aggression. I think great success has to do with creative intellect. I think it has to do with compassion and understanding people. I think it has to do with a sense of community and belonging as a team and recognising it's we and not just I. Mm -hmm. I think it has to do with collaboration and I think it has to do with negotiation and all those things have been historically the tenets and values of women. And those things were the things that kept the world going round, while in the past men created wars, fought in wars, created massive businesses, corporations, put middle management in to run them, invariably men. And all the while, it was the women who kept literally the home fires burning. And if you look at those, even to this day, the mental load sits with women. And I'm talking, I know enough stats, we can pull out some guys who are great, and most guys are great. But I think this would free them up to be better men if we all worked like that. And women are able to, we use the word of juggle, they will think about their home, their families, their elder parents, the fact that it's their nephew's birthday, that this is what the kids need for when it's school next week, they're going on a trip. They are still working powerfully. They are able to do and keep life happening. Put that into a workplace. Take out the aggression. Take out the individualism. Take out the linear way of working. Take out the combativeness. And you start to have a different type of working environment and a one that blooms and blossoms and empowers everyone. I think most men don't want to be told to man up. Mm. I think most men would like to work with this. So how about we show another way of working? And someone said to me, shouldn't you have a more gender-neutral title? And I said, because this will be more acceptable for men. And I said, no. Because this really is about values that historically have been associated with women in the human resources roles mm -hmm. or in the caring nursing roles, but not in the seats of power. And the seats of power are where those decisions are made for all of us in the rest of our lives. Most women who were ever talked about politics that they didn't want to go into it because it was toxic. Mm. When I was doing my high street report and was travelling the country, the people who came out and made change happen were the women. How do we take this, what I call this goddess movement of energy, mm. and bring it further forward? Now, the Me Too movement has helped that. Mm -hmm. The gender pay gap has helped that. And this needs pushing more. This is saying, no, the tenets and values of women are powerful. Let us recognise them. And I need to push out further in order for us to get to a place of equality. And also, yeah. though, I do think movements only really make change happen when they do push it into a place where it just starts to get a little bit, whoa, that's gone a bit far. You know, how, how did we ever get... How did we get the gay movement? You had to go out and say, this is 
unacceptable no more mm. uh, and you know what really we are looking at something here this, this the me too movement of course there's going to be a percentage that you think that's a bit shady stop it now mm. but generally this happened mm. i look back on my work life that happened to me I look back on my childhood, my school days. We, we talked about it with my friends this weekend and we all can see this abuse of power. Mm. This will make men better. Men want to be better. Men are better. Mm. You empower men to be connected deeply with a, a sensitivity that's there and it just makes them wonderful people, equally wonderful. Mm. I want my sons to be like that as well as my daughter. I don't want her to be out there aggressive having to fight in a world in order to succeed mm. and neither do I want them to be. Mm. You travelled the country mm. as part of uh, your... Um, TV shows. TV shows. And I wonder, we're talking about that, I wonder whether sometimes I live in a London bubble, the media that I consume, the company that I keep. And so I think progress is happening, I'm really pleased, this is fantastic, then sometimes I might venture out of London and think, oh, not quite the same out here. What do you think it takes to make it filter through? Your, your messaging, what you're saying about men picking up these tenets. Mm. How, do we, how do we get the message out of the bubble? Well, I think there's a huge responsibility on men too, and I, I, I think we have to just keep putting this out there and putting it in the public. You know, I, I, do, I don't just do, when I'm on the road with this, I don't just do the nice kind of London-centric mm. interviews. I try and get to places where other people can hear this voice. And um, I think a lot of men have pressure on it. There's an interesting stat in there that says, you know, men, if they start to drop their wage below that of their wives they feel they aren't performing as a man if a wife's wage drops below that of her husband or partner she feels okay so mm -hmm. something's the messages that we're giving to young men that you mm -hmm. still have to be the biggest wage earner you have to look after your family son mm -hmm. you know so there's a pressure on them and i just think that's deeply unfair so if we were able to free up the constructs that enabled women to go back into the workplace in a meaningful way mm -hmm. we are going to see real increase in gdp which is how this government and the world you know, measures success on growth, but very rarely on happiness mm. and wellness, which is what we start. We need to start doing. So I think this is really important. And I travel a lot across the country um, and looking at this. And I think it's about as much giving a man a sense of themselves and responsibility in family and with children and looking at paternity leave and looking at how that works and looking at the cultures of business that perpetuates this male leadership mm. versus female. It's a big conversation that will just... Look, we're talking here in 2018. Isn't mm. this crazy that we're still having this? There was a brilliant poster i loved when there was all the trump marches in london i do laugh and i love when women get the old marker pen out which makes me laugh i know exactly which one you mean <laughs> i still can't, can't believe, believe i'm protesting for this shit, shit. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to go this is just ridiculous mm. that we're still even discussing this my industry the retail and luxury and fashion industry 80 percent of those businesses are women mm. 80% of buying decisions are made by women on everything from cars. 
Only 10% are on the board of retail businesses. Can we, can we just look at that and go, why? It's just absurd. But then you've seen, you've been at the receiving end of behaviour like that. We've just seen the, 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 the behaviour that's been in the papers, the so-called, it hasn't been proved yet, of Philip Green. And you just think, that's why. I don't want to work like that. Mm. I don't want to be sitting there on that desk with someone who's going to be taking that power to a level that I just think is just simply just wrong. Mm. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, it's, um, it's a pissing contest, isn't it? Mm. There's something really um, basic about it. When, and when you talk about bringing this female energy in, and when I was reading the book, you were talking about, when you were at Topshop, you were talking about the window displays and the, the risks, for want of a better word, that you put in, that you took there, and then at Harvey Nichols, and there were certain risks that you took there. Like the, You were famous for your Christmas installation, window installations, which, if you've ever been past Harvey Nichols at Christmas, it's just magnificent. And you said, no, not this year. We're going to take everything out, and we're going to give the money we would have spent to charity. That was a, and I'm, I was about to say ballsy, but that was a really risky move. Yeah, but it felt right. It's all about sort of connecting with the cultural zeitgeist of the time. You know you feel it. This is where instinct's important. You just know, and I remember it was that sort of real conspicuous consumption. It was the end of the 80s, you know, and there was just this feeling that we were shifting and moving. And I could see the fashion was going into away from the big shoulder pads and the colour and the money into this slightly deconstruction. We were going through a recession. This was when the um, interest rates went sky high. And I thought, what if we didn't spend that amount of money? What if we didn't do glitz, but we made a really important statement that all the money we have spent, we would have spent on these windows, we're going to give to a charity and just leave each window empty with a light bulb in it. And a little sign saying, this is for the kids at Great Ormond Street, happy Christmas kids, or this is for, say, the children, you know. And it just, it it made people feel good. It didn't make mm. them feel bad. It made them feel good. But it was a risk. But it was an instinctive one. And I think when we, mm. again, when we ignore our instinct, I think is when we actually make some of the worst mistakes in life. So when I think about looking at those things that you've done in your career, and I think about how you've maybe been represented in the media, mm. it is um, that you are strong and forthright. Mm. And so you think, oh, that's why she's successful, because she's strong and forthright. That's a successful person's trait, right? And then you read the book, 
And underlying all of that is this kindness, is this nurturing, and even to the point where when you, was it when you were on your second maternity leave and Krishna stepped oh, in? Oh, my Krish. And Do just, you know Krish? Yes. <laughs> she said to me, she sent me a note, she said, am I in this book? And I said, yes, yeah, sure, I'll buy it then. Oh, thanks, Krish. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, you campaigned. You said, well, she stepped up. She deserved, oh. That deserves to be recognised. So... I had this. I had to realign my perception of you because I had fallen for the. She must be tough. Yeah. She must be masculine energy. For, again, all these ideas. Ball breaking. Well, God, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, we had that written, but that's the cliche. They want you put. You you have to be put into a box. With sexuality, mm. with family. Of course, you do. That that's the accepted face. So, mm. oh God, she's reached success. She's going into failing businesses. Let's show her this way. Um, and there is a part of me that's strong there's a part of me that's direct there's a part of me that needs to get things done and I'm, I'm not going to faff about but I, I also believe in people and, um, and I think to be humane and respectful and give a sense of dignity to people is probably the most important thing you can do in the world mm. um, and it's I mix it you know I, I, but my kids call me the claw you know the claw in the toy story that comes down and picks up the little <laughs> I said, that's just terrible. They went, Mom, no, we know you're there, and if we move out of place, we're going to get that. But, Mom, also, if we fall over, you'll pick us up. I went, that's okay. So I can't, you know, sit here and just think I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm fast, my mind's fast, mm. I work fast, I expect great things from people, you know, I have a short fuse, I have to manage that. But um, Oh, we'll come back to that then. Why? Because I have a short fuse. Yeah. And, and, I, and I hate myself. It lets so me do down. I. So Same let's here. come back to that. Same here. And I, uh, we will come back to that. Um, but I try my best to be on the right path and, and, and try and make myself a better person. And sometimes I fall off it. But mm. um, there was an interview that uh, Rachel Cook did of me in The Observer, and I just got so emotional when I read it, because she's a really great writer, and she summed me up, and she said she may be bossy, she may be a bit controlling, but she's got kindness she's stoic and she's brave and mm. I thought oh my god that is me and um, so there are times yeah when I have to do stuff where I think oh come on Portis but I do it with the right intent that's all that's that's the thing and I think that's what really came out from the beginning <clears throat> of the book is just yes you you made these decisions you put your neck over the line you were probably saying things in boardrooms with men you probably hadn't heard a woman speak like that in mm. those rooms before but you didn't assimilate. Mm. You stayed true to who you were. Mm. Whether you realised you were doing it at the time, maybe you look Probably back. not, probably not. But it was a sense of self that you have that also comes from a moral code and compass that my mother instilled in me and my, my parents instilled in me. You, you kind of, you know what's right. Mm. And I, I see some behaviours and I just think, I don't know how you sleep at night mm -hmm. when I start to see that business. I know as well I have a very quick karma. Me and my, my daughter have exactly, if I do wrong, it comes back at me like that. Do you have a quick karma? What star sign are you? Gemini. Oh, okay. What That's are you? Sagittarius. Oh, she is. Yeah, she's a right old Sagi. Oh, really? <laughs> I think that was a good thing. People you know, always great. say lovely, but... No. Oh! <laughs> oh! I love, I love Sagittarius, but there's times when I go, oh, please. And she has a radical sort of truth that comes out. You go, that was a bit much, but mm. yeah. I definitely have quick karma. Really comes back at me, so I'll just get caught out, you know, so just don't even... Don't even try it, Portis. Uh, talk to me about the short fuse. I just, um, I suppose I grew up with that. My father had a really short one, and it was the ultimate of, you know, that that's how you, um, 
you know, if, you, if Dad loses it, get out of the room, mm-hmm. you know. And that was, you know, something that I feared to an extent, but also I felt I didn't have much of a voice as a child because I was fourth out of five. So I didn't really mm-hmm. like... I remember my elder brother, you know, my mother thought, you know, his pearls of wisdom that dropped out of his mouth and, you know, and he was kind of easygoing. I, and I was high maintenance. My sister was, you know, lovely and easygoing. And my next brother was artistic. And then there was this mad kid that came along, which was me. And then my younger brother was sweet. And I, I remember sort of like... And especially in a big family, you was like, oh, shut up. No one wants to listen to you. So I, I always used to think I didn't have much of a voice. And so I, I think this short fuse and anger was, you know, just bubbling quite a bit mm. below the surface. And then I think also with the death of my mother, it just felt so wrong. Mm. Um... And so it's something I have to really manage. Is there a trigger? I'll tell you mine. You don't have to necessarily Come tell me yours. If I'm in a situation, and I, it happened to me recently, I was in a situation, lots of things were going wrong, I got very frustrated, and I realised quite quickly afterwards I needed to take myself out of the room. Mm. Because, but what happened was I got snappy. Mm. And I got very frustrated. And I could feel the anger rising and even I'm a bit more self-aware than I used to be and I could feel myself and it was almost my internal monologue was going you can't help yourself stop it stop it stop it don't be angry this isn't anger's not right here but it was just a manifestation of feeling frustrated and feeling like everything had gone wrong and I couldn't fix it I think mine goes back to where um it's more when you don't have a voice again it's like this has happened or it's a done deal or no, there's no negotiation. I think any, I, I, that just, the frustration in me, if someone says, the computer says no, I just think, no, <laughs> there has to be another way. And I find that that is the worst that you can possibly do to me. It's just going, no, 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 done deal, no, no. So, I, and in business, it's been a really great thing for me because I, I just do not accept that. I am not accepting that. Mm. But if it's in a, a social situation or a family situation or a personal situation or when it's just no negotiation, it's where I just feel I'm up against a brick wall, I just can feel me, I'm going to lose this. It's the injustice. It's the injustice. And it's making me think about former workplaces where I've been in when it's been like uh, 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 and you're just shut down because of the hierarchy so it's coming full justice or just you know um even where you just have been running for a train and you run onto the platform and they're blowing the whistle please please and they just look at you and they blow it and off the train goes and you know they could have let you on there for that second Mm. and you just think you I just that but then I always think that's probably the best part of your day because... Oh, shouting on the platform, I'm not yeah. sure. What sort of life do you live that that's well, the best <laughs> No, I just think... I've, did you not, I've seen it with train conductors before where it feels like the argy-bargy is more interesting than the ticket collecting or the... It's that power. I think cars. abuse of power I yeah. hate or that, that sort of... That's what it goes back to. I can. I can. Yes. I can. And I, that just makes me feel, and I, I, or I've even been where I've had situations where um, you've been in a, a, a working relationship or is, is breaking down and you just speak to that person about it and you just say, look, this isn't working for both of us. And they go, no, not, that's not my fault. And you just think, how can you not negotiate? I find non-negotiation or that's just the way it is, that intransigence, just the worst thing that you can do with me. I just... Um, I, I think there's always a solution somewhere. How interesting then that in your business you don't have appraisals, you have two-way conversations. 
Yes, because the appraisal is one person saying to you, this is what you're like and this mm. is what you've done wrong and this is what you could be doing and the other person being passive and responding. Mm. The power is with the appraiser and the power is invariably with one person. So you're left with one boss who's going to decide on what your future is. Mm. So now we have conversations and those conversations are also what other people think and how you work. From the receptionist who might think you're a complete burp because you're rude to her but you're wonderful to the boss. I cannot bear those. Mm -hmm. You know the type that's just, they know how to be lovely to the person who's in power but treat someone else badly. So we have these 360 degrees and I have them done on me as well and you are accountable for your behaviour and it just makes you just a better person. And a little touch of vulnerability where you think, did I do that? Oh my gosh, I don't feel good about myself. Well, I actually change it. Mm. Um, is so much better and also when you have uh, you know discussions and chats to see how work is going how you can get better it's about us just helping people to get better nobody wants to work in an organization that isn't growing them developing them and no organization wants someone who doesn't want to be developed and grow with it it's just like mm. when people go oh they just didn't like me they sat me you go well really or start, it must have been a breakdown. There's either a power struggle at the top where they just don't care about people and they can just get rid of you. Or you aren't looking at yourself deeply to say, well, how did I respond in that situation? Mm. Everything, there is two people. You know when you have marriage breakdowns and it's always the other one's fault, you go, come on. Mm. That's, yeah, you always have to um, mm. take accountability for your part. And even if you feel like something happened to you, you said, well... A, I let, let it. Let it, yes. Even if someone is abusing you in that, <laughs> yeah. well, you are letting it happen. So there is accountability and whatever. Yeah, it's um, getting out of it, as it were. You listen to your intuition a lot. We've talked about gut instinct. You stand for what you believe in. So we've got the example with Krish and the pay rise. Krish. She's a great girl. She's done well. Yeah. Hasn't she just? And then also it was when your gut instinct told you, your intuition said... I need to leave this job. Mm. And that's the moment I became an entrepreneur. Mm. How do you feel about the word entrepreneur? Because this has come up a few times on this podcast. And I feel like the fact that you've mentioned The Apprentice is quite interesting because I feel like that may have distorted the actual interpretation and meaning of what an entrepreneur means. I think it's said, like, I'm an entrepreneur. Like, people say, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's said as a, a status <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I've ever used it about me, and I don't even think of myself in that way. I mean, when I first left Harvey Nichols, I was scared stiff. I thought, what an idiot I was. And I actually, for about a year, hated it. I thought, should I go back? Oh, you know, because I left thinking, yeah, I'm going to start my own business. And with a slight, you know, hubris associated with it, I was, you know, lauded in the press for the work I'd done there. And I remember sort of driving my Merc back in and sort of like, bye, bye to my clothes allowance, bye, bye to all those international trips, bye. Please tell me that you just drove it up and parked it outside the food hall. She's <laughs> like, like yeah, fab. yeah, fab. She gets the yellow wheel. We, we had, also, <laughs> listeners, this is amazing. You heard about this um, comedy show that was lampooning the fashion industry. Yeah. And you said, let me meet the writer. We'll get Harvey Nichols involved. Yeah. And you made Harvey Nicks as much of a household name as coca-cola yeah. that was that was the best thing that was yeah that was what took it i a lot of the stuff that i'd done had made it kind of sexy and modern and talked about with the london scene but mm. the minute i did ab fab and that just became a global phenomenon for 
Harvey Nicks and I did, uh, I remember meeting Jennifer Saunders and thinking, God, she was very laconic. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's, she's very much sort of, and I, I thought she was going to be a comedian. And I'd, I'd love to do this with you. And she was like very. <laughs> uh, but we did end up working together and doing it. It was brilliant. So I, I just, you know, let her have the run of the store, film when she wanted, borrow clothes when she wanted. And it just was brilliant. It was a match made in heaven. Then I got her in the, in to do fashion show. <laughs> So terrible with Kate Moss and Naomi Campbell. We used to get the front cover of the newspapers all the time. Just brilliant years of just madness and creativity and knowing it was the right thing at that time. But write that down as a business pitch. I mean, we'd like no, to bring this comedy. Yeah. It wouldn't get signed off. No, of course it wouldn't because they analyse. Mm. And then they look at the numbers and what you're going to get for this. And then you get people whose real skill isn't making that decision, mm. having a voice. Um, and then you just end up with this kind of neutered, middle-of-the-road business, which mm. sadly we see so many today. But I said goodbye to all that, and then I just hated it. And I had these two little children. One was three and one was one. And someone said, well, maybe you resigned when you were post-natally depressed. I thought, well, that's bloody helpful. So I actually thought about going back and saying, can I have my job back? And I did have lunch with the MD, Joseph Wan, and he said, any time you want your job back? And I thought, no, pause, you cannot show failure. But I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur. I just saw myself as knowing what I wanted to do and knowing that I loved what I did and I felt confident in what I did and I could build a business around that. And about 18 months later, it started to take off. And then two years after that, I got spotted for TV, which would never have happened had I gone back into corporate life. It's interesting. I was chatting to someone the other day who has just left the corporate world and she's going through the we're talking a few months in and she's going through that sort of tentative feeling and I spoke to the other day said how how are you feeling how's it going and she said I'm looking around at all the people who left the corporate world and it took them two years and it's interesting that you said that after 18 months two years years. so she said I'm not putting too much pressure on myself because I have faith that in by the time I hit two years I will have used all of my skills and I will be where I need to be yeah which is quite a nice feeling. You, you know, I, I, if someone had told me that, oh, you'll be okay and don't go back into corporate, it just felt safe. And that, that safety, you know, I had a job. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was good at my job, so I knew they would keep me. Um, but it, was, it wasn't free. Mm. Safe, but it wasn't free. Were you were those roles where you had to be in at a certain time and leave at a certain yeah, time? Yeah, I like mean, that? you know, this was also the... Um, Late 80s, 90s, so I'm taking a... Uh, this is my old Jules Sander jacket, which I used to have, this suit from Harvey Nicks. Can you believe it? See? I'm upcycling and recycling and being a good person. That's how old this is. And last night, I went to a dinner which was celebrating a great friend of mine. She won a massive music award. And I wore my Yves Saint Laurent Le Smoking suit, which Anna Harvey, who sadly died, Anna Harvey, who used to be the publisher of Vogue, was an incredible woman. And she interviewed me when I was 28, and I just started at Harvey Nicks, and she did this page on me in Vogue. And I had never been in Vogue. And she said, darling, you need a Saint Laurent suit for all the events. And I'm like, I can't afford a Saint Laurent suit. And I waited for the sale, and I bought that Saint Laurent suit. And I wore that last night, 30 years on. Thank cost you, per, Anna. Cost per wear. Yeah, and there's Jill Sander. I'm not, I need to dry clean. <laughs> Sorry, too much information. No, no, no. I love it. I love so, but also a page in Vogue. 
I know. Isn't that amazing? At 28. And you know who came to style me? Izzy Blow. And I thought, oh my God, this is the most bonkers person that's ever come. What is she? She can't be the stylist. And she had this mad hat on and this red lipstick that was just all over. And she oh, no, 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 no. And I remember I wanted to wear something really pared down and, you know, simple. She said, no, no, could have a splash of colour. And we were photographed in the windows. It was just the most bonkers day. Wearing one of Philip's hats. Well, Philip hadn't started really then. No, she wasn't. She was wearing some other creation. I think it was like a cat's head on her head, but she was unique. I met her once with Philip. This is, sounds so name droppy, but I'm thought, but it's true. At Elton John's white tie and tiara, I was taking names. <gasps> and and obviously you have to be very careful with captions. So I would ask everybody if can you spell your name? So with Isabella it might have been one L or something. And they just stood in front of me and just basically said the alphabet backwards they were just really naughty and I got the giggles and obviously. yeah they're fun I found the other day I was doing a bit, a bit of a downward dog in my front room and I looked up and I saw this book and I thought oh that's a book I haven't opened and it was a Al- Albini I think his name is and I opened it up and there was a feather in it and a card and it was from Philip to me because I gave him his first show at Harvey Nicks I did the new generation and he said thank you Mary for my first one that was Philip 1990 I was like whoa and Izzy came and styled that. So this way of working that you've been doing naturally since you started has nurtured all these people oh, as I don't well know as about work- that. I maybe I don't know, but they've nurtured me too, hasn't it? It's a symbiotic relationship, oh, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, he, he's a household name. He's incredibly successful. It's not for me. I mean, I just gave him his first catwalk show, and he he had the talent. Um, well, that goes back to your thing of if you give people the freedom. Yeah. If you give people the chance. Yeah. They'll thrive. It's great, isn't it? That is incredible. There's more of those. I, I should do the real Harvey Nichols behind the scene days stories. <laughs> I need Krishna. Krishna, are you out there? We need to write this book together. Krishna does listen to this podcast. Does she? <laughs> Krishna Montgomery, that's who we're talking about. Owner of Monty PR. Owner of Monty PR. D- mentioned in the book, which is which there will be a link to find the show. <laughs> I'm gonna tell I'm gonna tell the story. <laughs> Actually, I remember this so vividly, Chris. This one's for you. So uh <laughs> we, you know, there was a bit of po- politics that used to go on there, you know, this we weren't quite as evolved. And I remember Krishna coming into my office and we were talking about something, and I said, Well, I think you're gonna have to speak to that member of staff about this, Krishna. And she said, oh, I don't think it's my job to do this. And I said, Well, I think you're gonna have to. And she said, I just don't want to be a prawn in this situation. <laughs> Do you mean porn, Krishna? <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, she still sends me a Christmas card that says, love prawn. Oh, <laughs> that's so sweet. I am going to ask you about, you said when you mentioned the book that you saw with a feather in, you said you're in a downward dog. Yeah. Now, it struck, in the book, you talk about taking, was it a year to decompress, to... Yeah, I didn't put a year time on it. It just took me that. Mm. I just didn't know where I was going with it. But again... I was reading people like Eckhart Tolle and, and Pema Chodron and they were like, you know, you just have to let this have oxygen and you have to let it take you on the right route, but you, you don't let it go, you don't mm. give up, but you, you can't fix it and you can't have an answer now, so you have to let it open up mm. and, and um, there is no finite answer here. And so I just kept on writing down and, and thinking and thinking and each day I just think a little bit more and how I felt and trying to connect with myself and wrote notes all the time. Do you think, I mean, 
I think somebody who's written about this book, and I can't remember who, has said there are Oprah moments in it. Oh, Rachel Cook wrote that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Rachel's a bit like that's my PA. I'll be two minutes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, 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 Rachel did write that. Well, you know what? I love Oprah. You know, who doesn't? I, who doesn't? And and um, she talked about connecting to your inner frequency, which sounds very American, your inner frequency, but she's right. And when you don't, it's painful. Mm. And so many people go through life like that. That's what's just so sad. Mm. So many people go through life never having to be able to connect with their vibration and who they truly are. And some people just don't have any choice. Mm. And that's just, just awful. Mm. And... Some people you talked about it and they won't understand because they haven't been able to even access this thought or have time to. So amongst all of the things for the listeners, if someone's listening to this and they feel very inspired by it, which I hope they do, is there anything you would say, right, if you feel like you're at any of these points in your life, whether it's there's any uncertainty or you want to make a change, what's the fundamental first step that you would advise somebody take? Well, I think the most fundamental first step is just to really think, am I really connecting and feeling happy about what I'm doing? Mm. I think that, that, that's all that this basis is on. Mm. And I think if you're not, try and understand what it is. And my first starting point was writing down what I love doing. And it wasn't like, you know, you know sitting at home section. with a glass of wine and a bar of chocolate, although that's in there somewhere. <laughs> but you know, what really makes me feel me? When am I at my best? And those can be really trivial things. Mm. You know, I read on, on one of these, I was doing a, a Twitter thing with Penguin online the other day, and someone said, you know, what would you suggest? And I said, you know, one of the things that really makes me feel me is when my hair's good. Does that sound crazy? It does. Mm-hmm. And if I don't feel it, I don't feel I'm merry. And when my hair doesn't feel good, that, and it, writing that down, that was even in my little list. And what really makes me feel me and when do I feel connected? And that one time that is when I'm at my most powerful. And then what do I really not like doing that doesn't? Why do I not like doing that? And I hate networking. It's really, it makes me feel terribly vulnerable. And I feel like I'm selling myself, which part of me is vulnerable, but it's also my ego going, I don't want to have to sell myself to you because Mm. I'm really good. You know, but I don't like it, and don't forget. And also, it's something that is um, an unnatural. It hasn't organically happened. Like I like to meet people that just I connect with, and I'll talk with them forever. Mm. But if I have to go and make something happen by networking, and it's not based on my skills or an organic, I feel really, really uncomfortable. Mm. I don't like it. You know, and I don't hang with people who are in the public eye just because they're famous because I happen to be on telly and they do too because I don't because I should do and they'll be good for my career they might be but I don't like it because it's not true um and so I wrote down all those lists of things I think that's the most important thing and then start to look at what it isn't that's feeding and what could you change Mm. and then you can work in organizations that will make you feel better and you don't have to be a slave You need to free yourself. There's the old saying, the truth is what frees you. It's as simple as that. Mm. And face that fear that you might have to leave that job, but you will find the right one. Because the only way we do grow and find the right place is by tripping up and falling flat on our face. And I've done it many a time. Well, that was that's another thing on this show we've talked before about failures and how you can get really wounded by them. But the the thing is, I now view failure as a stepping stone to success. Mm. Mm. 
That's how mm. I like to that's how I like to put it. Would you say that leaning into your failure, understanding what went wrong, and then making sure you never do it again and moving forward with the armed with that information? I don't know if I'll never do it again. I think I've done quite a few. You know? <laughs> but then there's also got, a section. You know, no, well gone. There's also a section in the book about the um, the universal keep teach trying to teach you the it same will. lesson it does. until you learn it. It does. I agree with that. That was Pema, was that my Pema? It's yeah. so true, it comes back and keeps coming back, back until you've got it. <laughs> and then they go, God, poor Trish, she's in a bloody late 50s. She's suddenly waking up. Well, you know, it's okay. I know. Uh, but do you think it matters that it's happening in your Oh, office? God, I wouldn't change a dot of my life. What a brilliant thing to be able to say. I wouldn't. Even the pain. Even miss you to this day, Mum, but I wouldn't change it. Yeah. I have to let you go now, don't I? Yeah, you do. That was lovely. Oh, can we do it again? Yeah, should we have a hug? <laughs> yeah, this is us hugging. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of The Emma Gunn Show featuring Mary Portis. If you want to get in touch, please do email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or you can slide into my DMs on social media where I am at Emma Guns. If you have enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed other episodes and you want to share the love, then wherever you are streaming and downloading this podcast, you may get the option to A, subscribe so you never miss another show. And there may also be the option to leave um, five stars and even a review. If you have the time and feel so inclined, I would be so grateful if you could. It makes a podcast like mine stand out on these huge, massive podcasting platforms. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back. Trust me, I am hustling to get more fantastic guests. So I will be back very soon and I will see you on the next one. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.